We've been teaching through the life of St. Paul, and we made it all the way through his life in a narrative fashion of sorts, studying what we knew about him as a man. And now we're looking at the theology or the doctrines uh, uh, that Paul uh, set forth throughout his writings. And it's something that will probably keep us busy through next year unless everybody gets bored and starts pelting me with tomatoes, at which point we will change uh, gears. But assuming people stay with it, that's where we're headed and, and continuing to work. These classes are available for download through the hard work of Mike and Ward and others, uh, Steve Taylor, and, and too many for me to count. Um, uh, if you ever want to get on the Internet website. Uh, classes like today, I've done the written lesson a little more th- thorough than I have time to do the oral lesson. So if you like what you hear, you might take home what you can read, and uh, uh, it gives you a little bit more of, of what we have to talk about. Uh, how many of you have a morning ritual? Okay, that's the way people are. Morning ritual is something that I think most everybody has. Cup of coffee? Okay. Don't talk to my wife until she has had that cup of coffee. It's not that she'd be anything less than cordial. She won't know you exist. (laughs) She's she's not really awake until that's within her. She's just walking in her sleep making coffee. I don't make coffee and I don't drink coffee. My morning ritual is a little bit different. My morning ritual is getting that dog out before he urinates on the floor. (laughs) Which I'm successful at 50% of the time. Um, my morning ritual on a day like today, the written lessons is, has gone to the printer. I've, I've, I've written the class. I've got the class there. Uh, um, but on days like today, what I do is I get up early in the morning, and to refresh myself with the lesson that I've written, I sit down in front of my computer. And I usually start out with some John Michael Talbot. Get some good contemplative. There's Joe Barnett, my preacher, on the front row, of course. Um, get uh, uh, some John Michael Talbot, some nice contemplative music going. And then I pull up uh, uh, a screen of, of uh, hopefully my, my lesson somewhere in here, my morning ritual. And I start working on my PowerPoint. I'll have the lesson there in front of me. And, and this morning I, I stare at the lesson and I start thinking, how do I best say in a way that conveys, hopefully understandably and also memorably, the message. Because I can stand up here and speak, but whether you remember any of it is, is the big challenge. I've listened to many people say many things that I have forgotten. Okay. Um, one of my fun things to do at work is to walk up to people I know went to church and on Wednesday ask them what the sermon was last Sunday. Now, if it was Fleming or Joe Barnett, everybody would remember. But there are a lot of preachers out there, not so memorable. So uh, um, you do it. And so I sat down at my computer as I was writing this lesson. I had my morning ritual writing the lesson this week. And when I sat down at the computer to write the lesson, I wrote Paul's Theology, Lesson 10, Jesus the Christ. And I'd already done my reading I'd already done my mental preparation. I just needed to put it down into paper so you'd have something in front of you and we could post it on the Internet. And I sat down there and I thought, now what am I going to do for an introduction? And I've got to tell you, I love my computer. But I take my computer, it's this one right here that I wrote it on. But I think I tend to take it for granted. 
And I was staring at my computer, and I remember in 1984 when I was at the Texas Tech University School of Law, and our library had just gotten in these new little computers. <laughs> oh, you laugh. Back then, that was so cool. Do you know if you made a typo, you could fix it without retyping the whole blasted page or putting on liquid paper and... I mean, I didn't understand these at first. My first computer, they had to get me in trouble at the law school because I was putting liquid paper on the screen. But I quickly caught on. I didn't have to do that. These things, you can edit. And I wanted one. I wanted one really badly. But do you know what? They were expensive. And there was just no way that I would ever have that kind of money, I thought. I wanted one so badly. But how can I get a computer? I know I'll graduate from law school and I'll get this great job as a lawyer. And maybe I can get a computer. So I graduated and I went to this law firm. My secretary didn't even have one. She had an IBM Selectric. And then, you know, it's a weird thing about making money. If you make this much money, you think, ooh, if I just had that much, everything would be easy street and I could get all those things I want. Then if you make that much, it's, it's gone. I mean, it's like kids. One kid takes all of your time, but you might as well have six because six take all your time. Two take all your time. Three take all of your time. They do the same with your money. One takes all of your money. Two take all of your money. Three take all of your money. You, it's just the, the rules of the way it works. And so it was not until 1989 we were finally able to afford a computer. But we got one. And oh, do you know what you could do with that? You could land airplanes. You could build civilizations. You could do all sorts of things. And I thought about it as I was writing the lesson and I thought about it as I was putting my PowerPoint together again fresh this morning. And what I really believe to be true is that time breeds familiarity. You're doing the same thing over and over and over again and you might have something a little bit different but you don't really notice it and you don't really pay attention to it because it just seems like same old, same old. And over time, you know, a computer right now is for me, I, I sit here and I work with this beast seven days a week so many hours a day that the, the, the novelty, the freshness has worn off a bit. Oh, I can still stop and pause and look at it and I'll start to salivate a little bit out of the left side of my mouth, but I can wipe that up and I can do okay. But I'm convinced that time breeds familiarity and when you have time and familiarity, it breeds commonness. It just becomes every day. You take it for granted. I will email. Okay, let me check my email. It's just something I take for granted. I think we do that with the word Christ. Think about the word Christ. You hear it in the Bible. Oh, heavens, it's in 534 verses in your New Testament referring to Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. 70% of those are by Paul, I might add. 372 verses, just under 70%. So you've got this word that's throughout the New Testament, Christ. But you've got it on the streets. 
It's so commonplace, some people think it's Jesus' last name. Some people use it as an expression of amazement or alarm. Some people use it as an expletive, as a cuss word. It's used in so many ways, in so many places, by both pious and impious people that I do think to some degree it's become very common and very familiar for us. So I want to pause for a minute and I want us this week to ask this question. Paul, who uses that term Christ for Jesus, 70% of the time it's used in the New Testament. Paul, why does Paul call Jesus Christ? If it's not Jesus' last name, Why does Paul call Jesus Christ? Now, those of you who've been in this class know me well enough to know that we're going to have a Greek lesson. So. Lewis, you want to do that Greek dance? Here's our Greek lesson. Christ in the Greek. Ignore that little Hebrew down in the corner for now, okay? Christ in the Greek is a really hard word to learn. It's Christos. And that OS, you remember if you were here last week, I talked about how Greek words have like signs on them that tell you where they fit in a sentence. That OS is just the sign that says that's if Christ is a subject. If Christ is not the subject, if it's the direct object, it's something else. But Christ, our word Christ, is the Greek word Christ. Christ is the way they would pronounce it. Christos. It means anointed, someone who's had oil poured on them or dabbed on their face. Anointed, that's what Christ means. Paul calls Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed. But let's take it another step. That Greek word Christ translates a Hebrew word, Mashiach in Hebrew, Mashiach. What's our English word? Messiah. That Hebrew word, Mashiach, Messiah, means anointed. Anointed. So, you've got someone like Paul who was trained as a rabbi, trained at the feet of one of the most famous rabbis of Judaism, Gamaliel. And Paul, being a Jew from a family of Jews, trains in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, But Paul's also very plugged into the Greek world. And so Paul has his Old Testament scriptures that are in Hebrew. Our Hebrew Old Testament would be Paul's scriptures. And there you read about the anointed, the Messiah, Mashiach. Okay? But Paul also had scriptures. Those Old Testament scriptures had been translated by Jews in Alexandria, Egypt. Into what we call the Septuagint. It's got an A at the end because this, they put the title in Latin. But it's uh, in English we call it the Septuagint. The Septuaginta. The Septuagint. It takes two volumes. But what the Septuagint is, is it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Okay? Old Testament written in Hebrew. But Jewish scholars, because the Jews had reached a point where they had permeated the Greek-speaking world. And a lot of them had lost their Hebrew tongue. 
They needed the scriptures in their common language, which for them was Greek. So some Jews in Alexandria, Egypt, the tradition is that it was 70 Jews. 70 Latin Septuagint. That's how you get the name. But these Jews do it, and when they are translating the Old Testament and they see that word Mashiach, they translate it Christos. The word anointed is translated as Christ in the Greek Old Testament. You all with me so far? Okay. So, you're saying, wait a minute, Christ is in the Old Testament? The word is. Paul would have known this intimately. Paul knew this both as his, his training as a rabbi and his own personal study. But this word Christ that Paul uses with Jesus, it's not a new word that Paul had never heard before. It wasn't a new cutting-edge word that the apostles or that Jesus designated upon him that had never been used before in, in Paul's language. Excuse me for a moment. I'm battling a cold. Uh, but Christ is a, a, a word that's used throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you three general groups of people in the Old Testament that were Christ's, that were anointed. Okay? The Old Testament Christ, first group, the uh, priests. Priests were anointed for their jobs. They were anointed for their tasks. If you read your English Bible, you won't read in the Old Testament them calling the priest Christ. But if you read it in Greek, you will. So, for example, Leviticus 4, verse 5. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. The anointed priest, that is, the priest who is the Christ... The Christ priest. And it's, it's, that's the way it reads. Um, not only the priest, but kings were anointed as well. King David. He was a Christ king. He was an anointed king. So, for example, when they're questioning whether or not Shemai should be put to death because of what he had done in betrayal of David... The question was asked, Should not, shall not Shemai be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Christ. I, it, it's, that's if, let's see if we can. If you look, we're actually looking, even though in our Bibles it's Second Samuel 19.21, in the Hebrew, that's Second Kings. There are four kings. So we're in Second Kings, and verse 21 is, winds up being verse 22 in the Hebrew. But if you'll look here, and you can remember what Christone looked like, Christos, here it's Christone because it's, ah, it's got to be a better way. Hold on. There. Sorry, yeah, you're getting seasick. Christone. See, that's CH is what that X looking thing is. That P looking thing's an R. So that's C-H-R-I, that uh, O with a tail on top or a ponytail, that's a S. C-H-R-I-S-T. And then it's got the sign at the end that tells you what part of the sentence it's in. Christon. Christ. That's, that's the word. That's the word. So you have an anointed priest. You have anointed kings. 
Christ was also used, and Paul would have studied all of this, Christ was the label used for prophets because prophets were anointed for God's work. You can read the prophets being anointed. So the prophets were Christ. Um, David says, touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Don't hurt the boys that have been anointed for the Lord, the Christs. And if we wanted to take the time, we could look it up and you'd see it's the same Greek word that Paul is using for Jesus. The ones who were anointed were set apart for something special. What it is, here it is, in, in simple terms. God exists, okay? And there is a world of people. But the world of people don't live in such a way that they can be in harmony with God. They live sinfully. And so God set out in the Old Testament records among his chosen people, God had set out some folks who were kind of middlemen, if you will. These were the, the anointed ones that were anointed. They were set apart. They were different because they were representative of the people to God and of God to the people. They were that, that nexus. Be they priest, be they king, be they prophet. They exist in, in that layer. Does that make sense? And so we read that of the anointed. Those are the Christs. Now there were lots of them. In the Old Testament you'll see a ton. There were, but, but there was always like a high priest over all of the other priests. There may be lots of lords of the manor and lots of people in a kingly role, but there was always a high king over the many kings or the many lords. There may have been prophets, but they even had some prophets that were greater than others and they had lesser prophets. The Hebrew mentality, I'm not saying there was a role of someone who was like Lord High Muckety Muck prophet and everybody else was a lesser prophet. What I am saying is that, that, that even in the Hebrew mindset, some prophets were greater than others. There were greater prophets and lesser prophets. The Hebrew mindset that Paul would have grown up with, that Paul would have studied, was geared toward the idea that while there were many anointed, some rose to the top. Some were exceptional. There were many kings of Israel, but there was only one, King David. Who was the greatest prophet of Israel? Moses. Moses. We don't think of him as a prophet, do we? Great, greatest prophet. So, this is what you have. Now, the Jews thought, because their scriptures taught, that among all of these different Christs, there was actually one who was coming who was greater than the others. This is one who was coming who would truly redeem the world. Not in a temporary fashion. Not offering blood of a goat good for a week or month or a year. Not king for a day, a month or a lifetime. But someone who eternally would redeem the people of God before God himself. And that was in Judaism from the very beginning. Paul studied his scriptures. He knew his scriptures. He knew that as Adam and Eve were being expelled from the presence of God, the relationship lost, 
the tie severed. Paul knew that even within that framework, God set out the prophecy of a coming redemption. God said, I, to the snake, to the serpent, God pronounced this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So through the offspring of woman is coming, one who shall bruise your head and you'll bruise his heel. He won't escape untouched. But his is a heel blow. Yours is a death blow to the head. Now, that's coming from the offspring of woman. Judaism recognized there was coming an anointed who would do something for humanity that would set things right permanently with God. And that prophecy is tra- laced throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, uh, Father Abraham, who was called to sacrifice Isaac and then stopped because God said, I'll provide the sacrifice. It's not your son that needs to do it. I'll provide the sacrifice temporarily there with the ram, but ultimately with his son. The prophecy was to Abraham, as God said, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not just the Jews. This is, I'm, God's not out. This Redeemer is not simply for God's chosen people. God's chosen people are chosen because it is through them the Redeemer for the world will come. That promise was re-emphasized not only to Abraham but to Isaac and to Jacob as God continued to affirm it. So there's a coming Redeemer that's taught that Paul knew about. Paul knew a Messiah was coming. And he knew something about the coming Redeemer. Because the greatest prophet, Moses, says the anointed one who's coming, the Messiah, the Mashiach, the Christos, the anointed one who's coming will come as a prophet from among you. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, like I'm a prophet, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. He gives more detail. It says, and God says, I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to his words that he'll speak in my name, I myself shall require it of him. The Redeemer's coming, an anointed one, a prophet, someone who declares the word of the Lord. Israel existed under judges for a long time. They didn't have a king, and they were having trouble with the Philistines. And they said, we need a king. If we had a king, we could probably whip the Philistines. So they wanted a king. They went to Samuel, we want a king. Samuel said, no, you don't get a king. God's your king. Yeah, but we don't see him like the kid who said to the parent, you know, I'm, I need a friend. Well, Jesus is your friend. I need a friend I can see. Okay? You know, sometimes, and that's not meant to derogate God. I'm glad he's not simply a presence we see, lest we think we could ever leave his presence. As an unseen God, we know we're never outside of his presence. He's not limited to a finite shape right here. He permeates our universe. So, so, but, but, but 
within the framework of this, the Israelites, they wanted a king they could see. So Samuel gets very upset and he decides, okay, I'm going to anoint Saul as king, as God tells him to. But God says, as Samuel is anointing Saul as king, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. Don't be upset. They've rejected me from being king over them. God always meant to be king over his people. The anointing, turning a Christ out of a man to be king, was the affront to God. Because God is the Christ king over his people. King David recognized that. So King David wrote psalms and and made statements about an anointed Christ king. This was said, When your days are fulfilled, a prophecy that Nathan gave to David from the mouth of the Lord. When your days are fulfilled, King David, and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, from your loins, from your lineage, from the seed of David. I will establish the throne of his kingdom, not for his lifetime, but forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be my son. This prophecy was made to David when David was thinking about trying to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord said, no, I'm going to build my own house. You're not capable of building the house that's the house of God, David. Your son Solomon gets to build a temporary shell, a temple, but that's never where God dwells. God dwells amongst his people. And this is a throne, a kingdom that would be set up for everlasting. Um, Another passage, David in Psalm 110 says, The Lord, Yahweh the Lord, that's why it's big in little capitals, Yahweh the Lord, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Same psalm. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. See, this is a prophecy about an anointed king. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You're a priest forever. You're a king forever. A priest, anointed Lord. And David says, my Lord, someone higher than King David. The Jews knew this. Paul knew this. Paul knew about the coming Redeemer. Paul knew when King Ahaz was in trouble. And the the Syrians were, were, were pressuring Israel because the Assyrians were on the march. And the Syrians wanted Israel to team up with them. They surround the city. And Isaiah the prophet goes into King Ahaz and he says, Hear, O house of David, the Lord himself is going to give you a sign of what he's about. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, Emmanuel, El. El is God, Emmanuel, with us. God with us, Emmanuel. We're told that this coming Redeemer is going to be from Bethlehem. In Micah, not in this passage. Um, I gave you the wrong passage. But we are told he's going to be a suffering servant. In this passage from Isaiah. And I want to show you the Isaiah passage. But I want to show it to you a little differently. I want to show you the Isaiah passage out of the Jewish study Bible. This is, this is 
This is a Jewish translation for use by Jews of the Jewish scriptures. And um, it's, it's, um, it's enlightening to look at. We'll start in, in Isaiah chapter 53 with verse 3. He was despised, shunned by men, a man of suffering, familiar with disease, as one who hid his face from us. He was despised, we held him of no account. Yet it was our sickness that he was bearing, our suffering that he endured. We accounted him plagued, smitten, and afflicted by God, but he was wounded because of our sins, crushed because of our iniquities. He bore the chastisement that made us whole. By his bruises we were healed. We all went astray like sheep, each going his own way. And the Lord visited upon him the guilt of us all. He was maltreated, yet he was submissive. He did not open his mouth like a sheep being led to slaughter, like a ewe dumb before those who shear it. He did not open his mouth. By oppressive judgment he was taken away. Who could describe his abode? For he was cut off from the land of the living through the sin of my people who deserved the punishment. He was cut off from the land of the living. He died because of the sins of people, God's people, who actually deserved the punishment. And his grave was set among the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no injustice and had spoken no falsehood. But the Lord chose to crush him by disease that if he made himself an offering for guilt. He might see offspring and have long life. It's actually everlasting life. That through him the Lord's purpose might prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see it. He shall enjoy it to the full through his devotion. Paul knew his scriptures. This, this was not a novel concept to Paul. The Micah passage says, But for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, from you shall come forth one to lead. It's, it's the, the Micah passage. It's in the Hebrew Bible as well. We'll go back. That's, this is not something simply added later by Christians who wanted to see the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. And you, O Bethlehem of Ephrath, Least among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to rule Israel for me. One whose origin is from old, from ancient times. Truly he will leave them until she who is to bear has born. Then the rest of his countrymen shall return to the children of Egypt, Israel. He shall stand and shepherd by the might of the Lord, by the power of the name. This is the, these are the Hebrew scriptures. This is written... 600 years before Jesus. We have copies of this in Dead Sea Scrolls that were written before the time of Christ. Where our, our copies of it predate Jesus. Physical copies. So now, if this is what Christ meant to Paul, I ask you this question again. Why does Paul call Jesus the Christ? Why does Paul choose to use that word? Now, how many of you have ever had a discussion with someone about the end times? Have you ever met um, someone whose hobby is discussing the end times? 
I know people. That's their deal. I mean, they've read the books. They've got like a degree in Hal Lindsey. <laughs> I know people who can use terms and talk about things in the end times and all. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a buzz. It's interesting. It's fun to discuss. I would suggest to you that at the time of Paul, many people were discussing the days of the Messiah. The Messiah comes according to Hebrew teaching in the last days. That's the age of the Messiah. We live in the last days and have since Jesus came, biblically speaking. So don't you know, lots of people in Paul's day would stand around and discuss, hey, I wonder, you know, I think this could be Messiah time. Heaven knows we need it. Some of them were saying, and we know this, we've got rabbinical writings from that time. Some rabbis said, Psalm 18, 49 to 50, that's got to be talking about the Messiah. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his Christ. In the Greek, Messiah in the Hebrew, shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Got to be talking about the Messiah. And the guy next to him says, well, I'll tell you what, definitely Psalm 110, that's got to be the Messiah. Lots of Hebrew scholars saw Psalm 110 as the Messiah. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, the one we looked at earlier. Now, I can't tell you what Paul believed about the Messiah before Paul became a Christian. But I can tell you what he did not believe. Before his trip to Damascus, Paul did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. You see, in Paul's mind, a a, a man who suffered on the cross could never be the Messiah. By the way, Paul was there when Stephen was stoned. Stephen says, behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's a reference back to Psalm 110. That's the blasphemy that caused Stephen to get stoned, and Paul stands there and holds the coats while they do it. Paul oversees the death of a Christian, the first martyr, because that man proclaimed seeing Jesus at the right hand of God. And then Paul goes on the road, road trip to Damascus, where Paul sees Jesus at the right hand of God. I wonder what went through his mind. We just finished killing a guy for saying he saw this, and now I'm seeing it myself. That Messiah passage, it's true. See, Paul, before he was a Christian, thought that a crucified man could never be the Messiah because Paul knew his law so well. He knew that Deuteronomy 21, 23 said, any man who's hung or crucified is cursed by God. How could the Messiah be cursed by God? The Messiah is God's anointed. He's God's blessed. This is why Paul says a crucified Messiah is a stumbling block to Jews. They can't get their arms around the idea that someone blessed and anointed by God would actually do something that would require God to curse him under the law. But as Paul became a Christian, he found out Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
Yes, Jesus was cursed. That's what made him the anointed redeemer. Because the curse was for us. It's the curse we deserve. See, you remember that picture? God, people, and the anointed between them? That's Jesus. Jesus is the intermediary. Jesus is the bridge. He is the gap. He bridges it. Everybody else was a token, an example. To the Jews, Jesus said, or Paul said, belong the patriarchs where the promises came, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. To the Jews belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, just like those prophecies that were written, that we went through in this class, from the patriarchs and their offspring, is the Christ, is the Messiah, is the anointed one who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. St. Paul says, Jesus Christ is King of kings. Jesus Christ is Lord of lords. Paul says, Jesus Christ is promised beforehand through the prophets, through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Jesus is His Son who was descended from David according to the flesh, which is what the prophecy said would happen, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Oh, how do you know He's the Son of God? He was raised from the dead. That's pretty good. That's pretty good testimony. Someone comes up to me. I am... I'm the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. Okay, I'm going to have a lot more believability if I know for a fact they're dead and rotten in the ground for three days and then they come tell me. Paul says he was raised by power. But not only that, he meets all the prophecies. And so Paul writes. Paul says, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but... What the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Messiah Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead. He would proclaim light to both our people, the Jews. And to the Gentiles, the whole world. That's what the prophecy was. That's why Jesus is Messiah. Do you know this song by Chris Tomlin? Play one verse.
that's why Paul calls Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Points for home. Who needs a Messiah? Who needs a Messiah? Who needs someone who's anointed? Who needs someone to stand between us and God? Who needs someone to make things right on our account with God? Who needs a Messiah? Paul says Christ brings the righteousness. The Messiah brings the righteousness of God through faith. I don't have the righteousness of God any other way. And I love you folks dearly. But I'm going to be honest with you. Neither do you. You just don't. I have some dear, some of my dearest friends in the world are in this class. I love Louis Miori like an older brother. <laughs> but even Louis, as wonderful a man as he is, doesn't have the righteousness of God on his own merit. He has the righteousness of God through his faith in Christ, the Messiah. He has the righteousness of the Messiah that's credited to his account. Who needs a Messiah? Jews and Gentiles alike. Because Paul's verse goes on to say, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, Messiah, for all who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody needs someone. Last point. I just want to go back to Paul's words on Jesus Christ. I want Paul to say it to you. And then we'll close with prayer. I stand here testifying to both small and great. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, may we never take the name Christ lightly. Please remove it from being common and familiar in a sense that ever allows us to dismiss it or disregard it, as it's said. I pray you will make us cringe when we hear people use it abusively or without the dignity and honor that rightly belongs to Jesus. And I thank you that we have Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, to pray through, to live through, to be our righteousness, to be our king, to be our Lord, to be our example, to be our comfort. We are honored to be in your kingdom and in your presence through Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the anointed. We're amazed at how you so clearly set it out hundreds and thousands of years before you brought it to pass.
And we're honored to be a part of your family. Through Jesus, our Messiah, our Christ, we pray amen.